passion is that we build a kind of church in the city that represents the heart of God. Our vision for NG Church is that we are a family of family churches. This is God's family. There's many other spiritual families in Stapleford, but we are God's family in Stapleford here. And, and likewise in the other suburbs. And we are a community church. We want to reach out uniquely to this community. Nothing in our spirits wants to stop that. But the church that I believe in is a community of community churches. The church that I believe in is a family of family churches and we will increasingly over the coming years give opportunities when we do meet together as one and so please as David said if we love one another let's not take a Sunday off but uh, make the plans and come and be with us thank you for the privilege of opening the Bible in the spirit that what I've just said I feel that God in a, in, a, in a quite a distinct way has inspired, encouraged, challenged me to preach what I'm going to preach to you, to every one of our churches. So Pauline's heard me preach this message five times now and there's a few more to go. And um, so, so pray for her. Um, but I've had to hear it five times as well. And uh, so you can pray for me, and the more I preach it, the more I believe it, of a value of, of something that I think is at the very essence of church life. I, I'm, I'm, it's easy for preachers to be melodramatic, but I actually do believe that if you grasp what I'm going to teach this morning, it will utterly transform your life, and it will transform, the, transform this church to be what God wants it to be. So this is the Bible. I'm not going to introduce it, I'm just going to read it. And I think 90% of you will immediately know where we are. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not rude, it is not proud, it is not angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears when I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I am known in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these 
is love. 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably the most common part of Scripture, certainly the most well-known passage in the New Testament. It's probably the part of the Bible that is read and heard and listened to by more people that aren't church-based than any other because nearly every wedding and nearly many times at funerals and commemorations the, the speaker comes out and reads these words. Why? Because they're nice words. They are nice words. Why? Because it's a poem, it's lyrical, it's, it's got a nice ring to it. Falsely, it seemed to be non-controversial. Why I say falsely? Because I think I'll introduce a note of controversy and challenge in a moment of what he's really saying. And yet, in spite of the popularity, it's one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture in the Bible. It's not preached on in the house of God very often at all. I include myself in that. I don't think I've ever sat down and studied and taught this passage in the way that I propose to introduce it to you this morning. What is it really all about? Paul, the author, gives us a little root, gives us a bit of an insight because he says to us at the end of chapter 12 that this is the most excellent way. So this, this poem, this, this lyrical passage on the merits of love, God says it's a route, it's a destination. This should immediately get into our brains because you're all on a journey. You may be sitting here passive for the next three quarters of an hour, half an hour, whatever, but we're all on a journey. I'm passing from being an infant through adulthood and I'm on a journey to kaput. And so are you. You're on the way. How far on the way? We hope we've got a long way to go yet. But we're all on the way. He says it's a way, so the question is, where is the way going to? What's the way? He also says to us that it is the most excellent way, which implies there's more than one way, but there's a best way. Uh, you know, and, and, and I'm intrigued by all this. What does all this mean to us? This way of love. One of the great challenges for us this morning is to get beyond the sentimentality of what we think we understand as love. We can all rock together with the Beatles, because that's my generation, and say, all we need is love. Da, 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 da. But, but, and, and, and there's been a million love songs and poems and books and stories. And whether it's to do with sexuality, whether it's to do with affiliation and, and filial love, friendship, sacrificial love. There's a thousand books been written, dramas, films produced, songs written about love. Do they know what they're on about? Is there any value in that? Yes, there is. But is it what we are looking at here? What is this love that Paul is talking about? Meaning. And have we got it, and are we on the way? First, I want to bring a little bit of context to us this morning. Because we've already heard that Paul says that the way of love is excellent. 
it's, it's a funny little passage because it sits slightly uncomfortably in seemingly in the flow of what the Apostle Paul is teaching to the Corinthians. He's been dealing with spiritual gifts, he's been dealing with body ministry and then all of a sudden he pops up with this thing about love. But what he's saying here to us, I want you to understand something church, that smack in the middle of your ministry to one another, smack in the middle of your mission to the world, I need you to know that unless you understand the power of love in your life individually and corporately, your ministry to one another is measured as futile. Hello? Hello? That is devastatingly, devastatingly important for us to understand that. Because I don't think we really do get it. He's actually saying to us here, He's saying to this church, and the context is this church, but the bigger picture is for every one of us. He's saying to us, Corinthians, you are a brilliantly gifted church. He says, you are a church in which signs and wonders, the gifts of the Spirit, are are released at a phenomenal rate. You excel in all the gifts. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. Have you stopped and thought for a moment what that means? That in that particular community of people, there was regular demonstrations of the Spirit's power. There were healings, there were miracles, there were demons cast out. There was an amazing sense of what Paul brought to the church. He says, I did not come into you with excellent preaching or wise words, but I came in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And you say, oh my God, we want to have more of this. And we do want more than this. And this church excelled in it, yet he says, if you excel in all the gifts and have not love, you gain nothing. That challenges my mindset. Because I just want to rock and roll with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And didn't I, I love the songs that we sang this morning. Thank you team. Just, just focusing on the utter greatness and wonder of God, who Jesus is and his love for us. We want to be spiritual people. Not only were they a, a, a gifted people, but, but, but Paul says to them, because the early church manifested the gifts to the, to the world, but also showed its love and care to one another. So, so they were not only a ministry-led church, but they were mission-empowered church. But Paul says to them, if you have all these gifts, he says, you, 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 are, you are nothing. And then he goes on to say, but if I give all that I have to the poor, here was the context of the gospel, reaching out with love and kindness. Acts 2.42 says the early church had all things in common. They shared their love for one another and they demonstrated their love. And alright, we'll go for culture a bit, we'll go for context and all that sort of thing. What it was like in 2,000 years ago, the church was full of compassion and met the needs of others and showed what God is really like. And Paul turns around and says, if you're dynamic in the Holy Ghost and if you give all your goods to the poor but have not love, you gain nothing. Nothing. Wow. Because I've lived my life in church that has emphasized the importance of preaching the gospel. 
I've lived my life emphasizing the need to be filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. There are only two things that need, I needed to happen in my life. What, what job I had, what woman I married, what friendships I had, all those things, what football team I supported, all those things were totally unimportant. There was only two things that mattered. When are you going to get baptized and when are you going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit? There's no mention of love. No mention of care for one another because, oh yes, it was euphemistically there. It was part of this ethereal, nice value system. Well, we should love one another. But no sense of urgency, no sense of priority, no sense of greatness. And in the middle of this church that is full of gift and full of ministry to Others who do not have demonstrating the mission of God. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Because you're full of gift, you're full of talent, you're full of energy. But when you meet together, you do more harm than God. Why? Because there was a distinct lack of love. There was a manifestation of selfishness. Where my need is more important than your care for me. Hello? All of a sudden, I don't feel so comfortable here in measuring myself and aligning where I'm at with what Paul is saying here. Am I being too extreme? Well, I go back to the words of Jesus. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, reply to a question well what is the greatest commandment what is the most important way that I can live Jesus says you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment you have got to love God well is that the same thing as what Paul's saying here and then he goes on the second is like it. The same is of the same importance. The same is a representative that if you do the one, you will do the other. You are to love your neighbour in the same way that you love yourself. And then he goes on to say this, all the law and the prophets, which is talking about the kingdom, the realm and the rule of God in our lives and in the community, the way the kingdom of God works depends on this. What? Follow the Holy Ghost? Great social action program? Getting Mark Ritchie to come and preach? Buy in the next great evangelist? Bring a faith man? Get a prophet from America? Bring new techniques, media, presentational stuff. Make sure we don't sing a, a song that's less than six months old. Da, 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 da. I'm being sarcastic. But he's saying, he's saying all those things are good, but the church does not hang on this. It hangs on whether you understand how much God loves you. You respond in kind to him and love him. And in loving him, you will understand how precious you are. And as you understand how terrific you are in God's love, you will be able to love your neighbour in the same way that you love yourself. That's what he says in terms of priority. Now, we could spend a lot more time there and I'm not going to. Because I want to, I want to get to this guts of, well, what the flogging heck is this, Lord? 
Is that all right? Is that, it's not all right. It won't fluff, fluff, fluff. It was fluff, fluff, fluff. And where are we going with this? What, what is it like? You see, he, he, Paul, having, having put down this marker of, of, of love's excellence and love's priority in the first three verses about ministry and mission, he then defines love. Now here's something I need you to understand right from the beginning. Love is not a concept. Love is not something that is abstract. Love is not even emotion. Emotion comes from love. Not the other way around. And so, in fact, in a biblical context, and this is true, love is uniquely and directly personified. Love is measured not by values, it's identified through a person. We could have fun and teach the doctrine of God, and I'd enjoy myself, I love teaching the doctrine of God. The bottom line is that God can do anything. And we've got little labels that we can give God. One of them is, is, is three names we give him with the prefix omni. Because omni is the Greek for all. He's omnipotent. So we call him omnipotent. Which means there ain't anything that he can't do. He's all powerful. We call him omniscient. Which means he's omniscience. There ain't anything to be known that he don't know. He knows everything. He can do everything and he knows everything. And something else we talk about him is omnipresent. Which means there ain't anywhere where he ain't. Got it? He's always there in all his potency, all his power and all his knowledge. When we think what, you know, ISIS is up to. When we think about what's going off in parts of the world. When we think about the persecution. When we think about the terrors and we, we get a little bit in, uh, intimidated. What we were seeing up there this morning. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. Now that gives us a problem. Well what the flopping heck's happening then if he's doing all this. But the confidence in the church in this context that he's all God. I know we could have fun about that, but the essence is that does not define God. What he can do does not define him. What, who he is defines him. And the Bible simply says this, God is love. You see, let me, let me read to you the most famous verse in the Bible. But, but, but just get it into your spirit what we're really saying here. For love, so loved the world, that he sent love, so that the love lost might believe and not be eternally loveless, but live forever the love life. Hello? You get it? Do you want me to do it again? For love, so loved the world, that he sent love. So that the lost, love lost, might believe and not be eternally loveless, but live forever the love life. That's the essence of the gospel. God is love. Jesus is the Son of God. 
He hath seen him, hath seen the Father. Love came down and dwelt among us. We were loveless and we were love lost. But he came and sought us and found us and brought us into love. That's the whole thing that eternally we might live the love life. We, his, his, it's just a help because we have to break through the, the lyrical familiarity of these words. So it's personified. Verse 4, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Love the, Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. Hello? You see, you see, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, Trapped by trying to be good, trying to be kind, trying to be loving. But, but, but by gum, I, I understand something. That to be with him is to be with love. And the more I'm like him and the more I'm with him, the more like him I become. And the more I can do this. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is ultimately this statement. Whatever your name is, say it to yourself right now. I've got to do it personally. John is patient. John is kind. John does not envy. John does not boast. John is not proud. John is not rude. Oh, gosh. John is not self-seeking. John is not easily angered. Forgive me, Lord. Except when he's in the car. You know, and we go on, and all of a sudden, it becomes a little uncomfortable, personifying ourselves with this abstract meaning of love. But no, he's actually saying to us, he's saying to us, love is a person. And the person is Jesus. But the person of mission is Jesus through you. So how do we get there? Because, because if we really grasp this church, there's no pain in this church. There's no anger in this church. There's no frustration in this church. There's no irritation in this church. You understand it? You're looking at me as though I've come from planet Mars. Am I taking you too far? No, it's not because, because the anger, the hurt, the pain, the frustration, the wounds of the past, all that stuff has been surrendered to love and love resides in you and love overcomes evil. Love takes no record of wrong. Love does not get easily offended. What you have been damaged, love takes away and gives in its place a care for one another. And there's something within me that says, oh, Jesus... It's not an abstract thing. Jesus, don't give me a fix of this, but Jesus, will you please be my partner for life? Because I found out something. That Jesus can cope with a bozo like me. That Jesus has dealt with my past. That Jesus lovingly understands my I won't call it hypocrisy because it's, it's not intended hypocrisy. But he does put up with my inconsistencies. He does put up with, with my showy rah, rah, rah. I'm going to be a fantastic Christian Lord. When I've broken bread on a Sunday morning, I'm feeling pretty lousy with everybody, including myself on Wednesday. He puts up with all that stuff because love never fails. Amen. Amen. That's what he's talking about here. 
This is not a nice little homily. This is transforming power of God in our lives and in our churches. Now how do we get there? As time takes us. He says, he says to us, he says, look, you're on a journey. He says, he says some of these things that you, you seem important, your ministry, your mission, he says, they're going to come to an end. He says, he says, it will pass away. This is the process. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. The imper- now, some people contextually say, this is all when Jesus comes. No, it, it is when Jesus comes, but not a second time. It's to the degree that he comes now in our lives, to the degree that we progress in perfection. We don't have to wait for this. We just have to believe for it that we're on this journey. And he, he says this, When I was a child, I taught like a child. And when I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. This is one of the bits of the passage that gets preached on a bit more often. And the general tone is, church, it's time to grow up. You know, we can have a bit of a rant with one another. And there's, there's a legitimacy, says we need to grow up. But actually Paul's not saying that exclusively here. Paul is saying that actually the way into adulthood you have to go through childhood. Hello? You may not remember it, all of you, but you were all children. You were all children. And God says there is something about your childhood that you must not forget else you'll never reach maturity. Now God, I'm not going to go off on another tack, but God talks to us about our relationship with him and he talks to us about being sons. Sons is to do with having inheritance, it's to do with rights, it's to do with maturity. You couldn't be a qualified son in the days of the Bible until you were an adult. Jesus also talks to us in the scriptures about being children. It means about having the DNA, having the nature of God. Born again of the incorruptible seed of the world. We are are partakers of the divine nature. That's in 1 Peter. That born again of the incorruptible seed of the world. What's that? Is that a harvesting farming term? No, no, it's it's a sexual term. We are born again of the seed, the semen, the sperm of God. And by it we receive the divine nature. He talks about inheritance as sons and authority. He talks about being carrying the nature of God. And then he, but importantly, he speaks something that is is different. It's about babies. He says, we've received the spirit of adoption whereby we call him Abba. The spirit of adoption. Why do I need to be adopted if I'm already a child by birth and a son by maturity? Good question. Because God wants me to enter into childlike understanding of who he is. Because the, the issue about being adopted is so that we can receive the spirit of adoption. And it's only through the spirit of adoption can we call him Abba. You see, Abba is not just the old Hebrew word for daddy. Abba is only the language for babies. I've got a grandson. 
He's 22, 23 months old. He's starting to talk. He's got about 10,000 words, of which about 20 are English. (laughs) And he jabbers away. He's jabbering away now to the point that, that if Pauline or I, and we have him a couple of days a week, that he can actually say, hello, granddad, which is an amazing feeling. When that little boy of monks millions looks at you and says, hello, granddad. But I've understood something. Their words that he's understood, he recognizes us and he's safe with us and he's comfortable with us. But when dad turns up, it's daddy, 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 daddy. It's, a, it's an excitement. It's a, it's a burst out of him. Now, let me explain something to you here really profound. Not only does he call my son Andrew Daddy, but at the moment he's just getting through this, but for, for the last few months he's called his mum, Gemma, Daddy. He can't get mixed, he gets mixed up between the two. As far as he's concerned, mummy and daddy are, in his definition, are one on the same. He just calls them both daddy. What he's doing, he's identifying that with someone, he is with Abba. It's not a definition, it's not an under- it's an instinct. He'll get mummy sorted out, he's got it, because Gemma was quite concerned that she was understood to be mummy and not daddy as mummies do but uh, you see a bigger thing the little boy associated with the two life sources of his life the greatest place of security the heart of love he called them both Abba and he says you adults you children you carry the nature of God you who are sons of God and are at maturity you church who've got a thousand years of experience you who know how to do this you who know how to do that you who are not rot he says unless you understand that you've got a relationship with him that you can call him Abba by instinct not by choice not by emotion not just the good days not by religiosity not just when you sing the song but every minute of the day you are aware of the presence of him who is divine love that you call him Abba that's the essence of being a childlike which Jesus says unless you become like these you will not have the kingdom of God who were the deeds These, they were the babes who made a noise, who weren't quiet, who we shift out and thank you, I appreciate that they've gone because they would be a distraction if they were in. Yet Jesus used them being in his circle where they were burbling, pooing, doing what they were doing and, and all that stuff and he says, unless you become like these... So there's the context and the concept, the reality of of what love is really about. He's he's saying to us, and he he talks about this seen as a poor reflection, the mirror. The mirrors in those days were not glass with a chrome covering at the back. They were pieces of brass that was polished so you could see an image but it was a huge distortion. And the world, the world is like a mirror that shows a little bit of you and sees a little bit of the church. But 
we see the world not through that distortion we see it through the eyes of Jesus and the world will see Jesus through us if we journey on this amazing way the excellent way of coming to know his love you see guys we can't do it until we have it you get it we can't do it till we have it we, we, we will talk till we're blue in the face about we should love one another more I've listened to it I've said yes I know I just got it I'm even bored by hearing people tell me we should love one of people and it's, it's it's much deeper it's just coming to terms with that devotion song that we sang about that we bow the knees and let him love us and in return love him so that we do live out this poem time's gone do you know him? do you love him? do you hear his voice? we used to sing a little song and he walks with me and he talks with me we haven't sing it now it's not fashionable it's got a tune so we can't sing it sorry that's sarcastic again sorry but he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share him and me as we tarry here nobody else knows it nobody's got it it's just him and me Jesus Years ago, I, in my office, I've, I've done, I've finished. I was, um, I was an engineer, production engineer, lived in, uh, worked in Plessy, 10,000 people, and the department had hundreds of inquiries every day for projects, and I was working in the office, and all my colleagues were out the office, and I was really fed up, I was seriously niffed by the number of phone calls that came in, and I was trying to write a report. Anyway, the phone went the umpteenth time and I picked it up. Tall engineering! Which is up. Who is it? And the, and the, bo- the bloke even asked for anybody. And I said, Who is it? And the voice said, Truman. Now that means nothing to you, but to me it was death. Because Truman wasn't my boss. He wasn't even my boss's boss. He was my boss's boss's boss. Ah, and I thought, and this thought flashed through my mind. Please, God, don't let him recognise me. <laughs> and stutteringly saying, I, I, "I'm sorry, Mr. Truman. There's nobody in the office. Can I take a message?" He's just said, "Will you get Bill to call me, John, when he's in?" <laughs> few, few weeks later the office is, is full and the phone rings again and for whatever reason I pick the phone up again before my other colleagues and pick the phone up tool engineering and the voice at the end of the phone says it's me I mean what a stupid thing to say it's me but it wasn't a stupid thing because it wasn't Truman it wasn't 
one of my mates, it was my dad. Because my dad worked at Plessy as well. You get it? That's Abba. Just to know him. Just to hear his voice. Just to know that it's not a meeting that's required, not a song that's required, and we love both, but it is the intimate presence of love that touches my life, that heals my wounds, that makes me good for you the most excellent way. I'm going to get you to sing a hymn. So stand up, because you can only sing hymns standing up. Oh, I love this bit. El Supremo, I'm in total control. I need a band. Uh, I've got a bit of a challenge on here. Most of you will know it because the majority in here this morning are of the adult vintage. I, I don't want you to sing this hymn sentimentally. I don't want you to sing it emotionally. I want you to sing it devotionally in faith. Here are the words, love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down I want you to sing it personally wherever the plural tense comes in about us and we I want to invite you to sing me and I fix in me love divine all loves excelling pure unbounded love thou art fix in me I'm just a humble dwelling and all your faithful mercies crown and it goes on and we sang a song already about being devoted to Christ. And we sing this song as on air and time has gone. But invite the joy of the Lord and the joy of heaven to fix in me all the mercies of God's grace in Jesus' name. Let's sing together.